Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Black Perspectives Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, the Rome, Georgia News Tribune, and we're going to start things off with a book review from the New York Times. The title is Josephine Baker, International Woman of Mystery. It was written by Marissa Meltzler. The actual title of the book that's being reviewed is Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy by Damien Lewis. This book review was published August 7th, 2022. In the first half of the 20th century, Josephine Baker was one of the most famous women in the world. Born into poverty in St. Louis, she became a star of the Paris stage in the 1920s. Stories of her walking down the Champs-Élysées with her pet and sometimes co-star, a cheetah named Shakita, had already made her the stuff of legend. In Agent Josephine, the prolific historian Damien Lewis goes a step further in burnishing this legend, arguing that Baker was a spy for the British. Or more or less a spy, Lewis employs careful language to hedge the title's bold assertion. In his author's note, he writes that Baker told her biographer Marcel Savage precious little about her wartime activities on behalf of the Allies, and very deliberately so. She rarely, if ever, spoke or wrote in detail about any of her wartime work and went to her grave in 1975 taking many of her secrets with her. A few pages later, Baker had also played a little-known clandestine role during the war as a sometimes resistance fighter and nearly possibly also a secret agent or spy. Baker was certainly an active member of the French resistance. At her former home, Chateau de Milan, there was an entire wing dedicated to her war work. Lewis is a verbose writer who can dedicate myriad pages to his own biography. My father and my stepmother, Leslie, live in France in a beautiful medieval-era chateau that they purchased in a near ruin with cattle still living in some of the buildings. At times, he makes himself around like the Indiana Jones of archival research, imbuing the process with drama. I knew the files I wanted existed, and were supposedly open to the public, but where no official actually seemed to be able to place their hands upon them. In a cinematic telling, Baker had a terrible tour of Germany and Austria in 1928 where she experienced the rise of fascism. During the early days of the war, she volunteered at a Paris food bank. She became more active once the Nazis began to occupy her adopted home, signing on with the Britain's Secret Intelligence Service as an agency akin to the CIA that worked with the French counter-espionage service, the Duchesne Bureau. She convened a group at her chateau shortly after the 1940 fall of Paris to listen to a speech by de Gaulle. Maurice Chevalier is used in the book as a kind of foil to Baker's heroism and bravery. The two stars shared a stage in Paris where they didn't hit it off. While she was working for the resistance, he sang light and uplifting popular songs on the German-controlled Radio Paris. Lewis quotes Baker on Chevalier, a great artist, but a very small man. In Lewis's telling, there are deliberate echoes of Matahari, the World War I-era cabaret dancer who was found guilty of selling secrets to the Germans and shot. 
Baker certainly traded on her connections, including using her relationship with Miki Sawada, the wife of the Japanese ambassador to France, to gain embassy access. And she leveraged her own status as a celebrity and a person who fit in nowhere and everywhere as cover, employing a tour through Lisbon and on to Morocco in order to flee France. She brought with her a menagerie of exotic pets, including her Great Dane, Bonzo, Glu the monkey, Micah the golden lion, Tamarin, Gugas the marmoset, and two white mice named Bugatti and Point d'Interrogation. Lewis's assertion that for Baker, the unconditional love of animals was probably easier than relationships with humans is both simplistic and probably accurate. Either way, he quickly moves on from the unusual foray into the psychological analysis to return to his literary strengths, facts, and action. Sometimes it feels as if Lewis is content to accept the narrative that Baker consciously created for herself. The book dips in and out of biography, cutting from World War II to her hard-scrabble youth as the daughter of a teenage mother. She was raised largely by her grandmother, who had been born into slavery. The United States is fairly portrayed as a country where racism is both rampant and open, but France is idealized. Lewis quotes a Parisian club owner who tells a racist American patron that you are in France, and here we treat all races the same. Lewis unquestioningly accepts the assertion, an oversimplistic and frankly inaccurate view of a country that struggles with race to this day. But then, this is after all a book that begins with Baker's quote, More is achieved by love than by hate. Hate is the downfall of any race or nation. A fascinating subject at a pivotal time in her life, Baker still doesn't come alive on the page and remains unknowable. Maybe her ability to conceal and charm are why she was so good at espionage, but Lewis doesn't take much time to explore the question of how she conceived of her own story. I don't lie. I improve on life, she once told a reporter. But she is a complex woman, one who owned a Jewish prayer book, wore a hijab in Marrakesh, and had a Roman Catholic funeral when she died in 1975. What is compelling is the ragtag, oddly posh crew of supporting characters who surround her in her adventures. There's Captain Maurice Apte, who commuted to work in Paris via kayak on the Seine. Father Dillard, a Chateau-born Jesuit resistance fighter. Hans Missig, also known as Thomas Levin, a Teutonic equivalent to James Bond, whose life story was turned into a thinly veiled book with the exceptional title, It Can't Always Be Caviar. Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale is particularly memorable. A son of a shipping magnate and supposed role model for 007, he rides around in a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce using an ebony cigarette holder and wears gold Cartier cufflinks. The famed French jeweler makes so many cameo appearances in the book that Cartier should consider sponsorship or at least self-replicas of the bracelet Baker commissioned for a lover engraved with the letters PFQA for plus Fort K. L'Amour. Lewis points out that ultimately, the war years were Baker's coming of age and true awakening. Baker returned to American stages in 1951, where she was refused a room in New York, received threatening phone calls from the Ku Klux Klan, and was the subject of rumors that she was a communist sympathizer. And yet she was ready to take on her country of origin and its problems, 
Baker spoke at the March on Washington in 1963 before Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Does it really matter if Josephine Baker was a particularly active member of the French resistance or an actual spy? Not to the French government. In the end, she earned the Medaille de Résistance, Avec Palm, and the Croix de Guerre, the Légion d'Honneur, and was buried in the Pantheon. All the accoutrements, in short, of a true French heroine. That was a review of the book Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy by Damien Lewis. The title of this book review article was Josephine Baker, International Woman of Mystery, which was written by Marissa Metzler. It was published August 7, 2022 in the New York Times. Next on the African American Hour is a reading from Black Perspectives magazine, which is published by the African American Intellectual History Society. Their website is aaihs.org. The title is The Missing Black Women in Denmark Vesey's Conspiracy, written by Karen Cook Bell and published August 30th, 2022. The Denmark Vesey Conspiracy transformed how enslavers viewed free and unfree men who labored in the cities and countryside in Charleston, South Carolina. Significantly, enslaved and free black women who labored as domestics worked in fields and cooked for the men who were tried and convicted for conspiracy, avoided suspicion in the conspiracy, were overlooked as coast conspirators. Artisans and laborers in the slave and free black community of Charleston played a central role in planning the insurrection. Interrogating the role of enslaved and free black women in Charleston and the surrounding area underscores the ways in which black women aided and abetted slave conspiracies and revolts. In examining the role of black women and Vesey's motive for the insurrection, it is essential to ask how did the fact that at least two of Vesey's wives and several of his children remained enslaved influence his decision to launch a revolt against the institution of slavery? If Vesey confided in his wives as he planned the revolt, how can we begin to interrogate their role and the role of other wives and mothers in the conspiracy? Freedom as an ideal and as praxis lived in the hearts and minds of enslaved women. According to historian Dr. Vanessa Holden, African-American women were involved in an active and constant culture of resistance among black people. Their persistent everyday resistance positioned them within their communities to participate in moments of violent revolt. Slave rebellions and rumors of slave rebellions illuminate the networks enslaved women created in support of slave insurgency. In the 1712 slave conspiracy in New York City, the main arsonists were allegedly women. In 1774, Four enslaved women in Georgia conspired with six enslaved men to kill their enslaver and an overseer. In Gabriel Prosser's rebellion, Gabriel's wife Nanny was involved in the planning. Denmark Vesey reportedly had relationships with multiple women, and he had at least three wives over the course of his life. Indeed, after Charleston's white officials had uncovered the conspiracy plot, and after the alleged starting date of Sunday, June 16th, had passed without an uprising, Vesey remained in Charleston, 
where he was secreted in the house of one of his wives, according to a sketch of Vesey's life. Six days later, during a severe storm, he was arrested. The fact that no women were executed for conspiracy should not negate the presence of enslaved women and free black women who were co-conspirators in the conspiracy. By maintaining a culture of silence regarding the conspiracy and its afterlife, the wives and daughters created an environment that was conducive to subversive actions. The official report of Vesey's conspiracy is full of silences and unanswered questions. The men who formed the nucleus of Vesey's conspiracy, Ned, Rolla, Peter, Gulla Jack, and Monday Gale, met in shops during the day and at each other's homes at night. According to historian Douglas Egerton, the wives of these leading men were likely aware of the conspiracy. Furthermore, the men were recruited from the countryside to rally those on plantations. It is inconceivable that enslaved women would not have heard of the planned conspiracy within the slave community. From the official report of the conspiracy, we know that Vesey made recruiting trips into the countryside as far north as South Santee and southward from Charleston some 70 to 80 miles from the city. The man had also gained the support of enslaved people from at least four nearby plantations. The men who conspired to insurrection were members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church under the leadership of Bishop Morris Brown. From the official report, we know that according to the witnesses, the entire African church was aware of the planned insurrection. Each co-conspirator recruited participants from specific areas and neighborhoods. Conspirator Peter was recruited from the South Bay neighborhood where he lived. Except for Rolla and Monday Gell, who confessed and gave testimony, none of those arrested and tried belonged to the companies recruited by Vesey, Peter, Ned, and Gullah Jack, an indication that the secrecy compelled by the leaders amongst the participants remained in the afterlife of the conspiracy. Vesey and his men reportedly burned the papers detailing the conspiracy as soon as they heard the plot had been discovered. From the official report of the planned insurrection, there was an indication of the process by which enslaved women and men from the countryside would make their way to Charleston on Sunday, June 16th, the day of the insurrection. Many of the plantation women, under the task labor system, traveled to urban markets on Sundays to sell eggs, poultry, and crops produced in the internal slave economy during the free time the system permitted. As in Africa and the Caribbean, the important role played by black women in the Charleston markets enabled the creation of networks between rural and urban enslaved women and encouraged a black female forum on current issues. According to the official report, canoes of various sizes would have afforded conveyance for slaves to bring goods and stock to the Charleston market. Vesey believed that Sunday would offer the best chance for the insurrection since, on Sundays, enslaved people from the countryside came into Charleston without being particularly noticed. The importance of women and children in the lives of the leaders of the planned insurrection cannot be overstated. According to one of the witnesses at the trial, Denmark Vesey was motivated to plan and launch the insurrection because he had several children enslaved and he wished to set them free. Monday Gale made this same statement in his confession. Conspirator Peter Poyas, a slave who worked as a ship's carpenter and who had the trust and confidence of his enslaver, had a wife and several children who were enslaved and whom he requested to see before his execution. 
Enslaved women were well aware of the plot and maintained a culture of silence in support of the insurrection, as evidenced by the testimony of Sally, who testified that she heard Jesse, whose brother was married to her mother, speak about it several times. Sally had also informed others that Jesse had set off for the country to inform the people to go to town on Sunday, June 16th, but was stopped by slave patrols. Enslaved women who were referenced in the official report of the insurrection were the wives, daughters, daughters-in-laws, and friends of the conspirators. Sarah, whose mother Beck was married to Denmark Vesey, served as Vesey's cook providing meals to Vesey and was very likely his co-conspirator as they met at Vesey's home. Although Beck and Vesey had been separated for some time, Vesey visited her at her house and, according to witness William, often spoke of the uprising. That black women were well aware of the planned insurrection and were silent co-conspirators is further adduced by witness Edwin, who stated that he heard everybody, including the women, wonder why Denmark Vesey and Monday Gale were not immediately taken upon when authorities learned the conspiracy. Vesey's other wives, Dolly and Susan, who was free, likely had knowledge of the planned insurrection as Vesey's friend Bacchus testified that Susan and other women were frequently at Denmark Vesey's house, where they took in ironing and laundry. Although Vesey, according to Douglas Edgerton, discouraged his officers from recruiting women, women still learned of the plot and maintained a culture of silence regarding the plot. As historian Dr. Ann Kurth has articulated, Conspiracies need privacy, mobility, and trust to grow and thrive. As wives, daughters, daughters-in-law, and friends, black women provided or facilitated each of these qualities. If we read into the silences, we find that women carefully thought about their actions, did not divulge any secrets, and devised strategies and tactics that allowed the planned insurrection to advance before it was ultimately discovered. If labor served as one of the primary sources of evidence to accuse and convict the men in Vesey's conspiracy, a culture of silence among black women saved lives. That was a reading of the article, The Missing Black Women in Denmark Vesey's Conspiracy by Karen Cook Bell, which was published August 30th, 2022 in Black Perspectives Magazine, which is published at the aaihs.org website. My next story on today's program is an obituary from Rolling Stone Magazine and rollingstone.com. The title is Lamont Dozier, Motown songwriter behind countless classics, dead at 81. It was written by Emily Zelmer and was published August 9th, 2022. The subtitle to this story is, As part of the incomparable songwriting team Holland Dozier Holland, the Detroit native co-wrote some of Motown's most enduring songs. Lamont Dozier, the Motown songwriter and producer who helped craft hits for artists such as The Supremes, The Four Tops, and The Isley Brothers, has died. He was 81. The news was confirmed by his son, Lamont Dozier Jr., who wrote on Instagram, Rest in heavenly peace, Dad. A cause of death has not yet been announced. My condolences to Lamont Dozier's family, Diana Ross wrote. He will always be remembered through all the beautiful songs that he wrote for me and the Supremes and so many other beautiful songs. 
Dozier was born in Detroit on June 16, 1941, and launched his career in music as a singer, performing with various local doo-wop groups like the Romeos and the Voice Masters. In 1962, he signed to the Barry Gordy's fledgling Motown Records as an artist, producer, and songwriter, and quickly found himself working with brothers Brian and Eddie Holland. The trio, which came to be known as Holland Dozier Holland, or just HDH, turned out a few deep cuts during their first year together, but generation-defining success came soon enough. As Motown founder Barry Gordy put it in a tribute, the sound of HDH became synonymous with the Motown sound. Gordy added, Lamont was a brilliant arranger and producer who balanced the talents of the great Eddie and Brian Holland, helping to pull it all together. Lamont was a good friend and will be missed by the entire Motown family. My sincere condolences to his family and friends. In 1963, Holland Dozier Holland scored their first top 10 hit with Martha and the Vandellas' Heat Wave and Quicksand, as well as the Miracles' Mickey's Monkey. While Eddie Holland primarily crafted the lyrics and vocal productions for the songs they wrote, Dozier and Brian Holland served as the team's main producers and arrangers, working closely with Motown's house band, the Funk Brothers, to fine-tune the label's signature blend of R&B and pop, with some grand orchestral flourishes thrown in for good measure. In 1964, the songwriting and the sound came together perfectly with the vocal talent and star power when Holland Dozier Holland partnered with the Supremes. That year, HDH crafted three iconic number ones for the girl group, Where Did Our Love Go, Baby Love, and Come See About Me. In a 2003 interview with Rolling Stone, Dozier said it was after Where Did Our Love Go hit number one that he knew HDH had a special kind of chemistry. Brian and I used to have lunch at that little walk-up, and once that wheel started rolling with Where Did Our Love Go, I said, Man, we've stumbled onto something. Are you feeling this, he said. Yeah, I'm feeling it too, I said. I don't know what this is, but I don't think this thing is going to stop. It was like being at the carnival and hitting that bell. Bam, number one. Bam, number one. Bam, number one. When we weren't doing that with the Supremes, we were over here with the Four Tops. Bam! It was surreal. HDH scored seven more number ones with the Supremes, bringing their total with the group to 10 in the brief period between 1964 and 1967. On top of that, the trio was also penning and producing timeless hits for other Motown favorites like Marvin Gaye's How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You and the Four Tops I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, and Reach Out, I'll Be There. Recalling the making of the later track in the Wall Street Journal in 2013, Dosha remembered how they encouraged Four Tops vocalist Levi Stubbs to tap into his inner Bob Dylan while recording the lyrics. Back in 66, we were listening to a lot of Bob Dylan. He was the poet then, and we were inspired by his talk singing style on Like a Rolling Stone. Dylan was something else, a guy we looked up to. We love the complexity of his lyrics and how he spoke the lines and sang them in places. We wanted Levi to shout sing Reach Out's lyrics as a shout out to Dylan. In 1967, however, Holland Dozier Holland left Motown over a contract dispute with label founder Barry Gordy. Subsequent litigation wasn't settled until the late 70s, but during that time, the trio launched their own labels, Invictus and Hot Wax, and kept making music. 
1970, they scored hits with the chairman of the boards, Give Me Just a Little More Time and Frida Payne's Band of Gold. And Dozier started making music himself again, releasing a handful of high-charting R&B tunes, including 1972's Why Can't We Be Lovers, which was credited to Dozier and Brian Holland in 1973's Trying to Hold On to My Woman. Dozier returned to the top of the charts one more time in the late 80s when he partnered with Phil Collins to co-write and produce Two Hearts, which appeared on the soundtrack of the film Buster. Along with hitting number one, the song was nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars, shared the Golden Globe in the same category with Carly Simon's Let the River Run from Working Girl, and notched Dozier his first Grammy nomination and win for Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or Television. In 1988, Holland Dozier Holland was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, while two years later they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In a 2019 interview with the Detroit Free Press, as Dozier prepared to publish his memoir aptly titled How Sweet It Is, the songwriter reflected on his work and the remarkable legacy of the music he helped create. Everything I write, I give credit to God, the master muse, he said. I thank him for letting me put my name on his music. That's how I started regarding it. I don't read music and I can't write it either. I did it all by ear and feeling when I sat down at the piano. But I still hear that stuff over and over. It still hasn't let up. They still play that music, man. It's amazing. I thought some of it wouldn't last a day. But it's been here for 60 years and that's a great feeling all over the world. That is a reading of the obituary. Lamont Dozier, Motown songwriter behind countless classics, dead at 81. It appeared at RollingStone.com, was written by Emily Zimler, and was published August 9th, 2022. Next on the African American Hour is a reading from the September 2022 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. The title of the article is Half the Battle. It was written by Matthew Delmont. The massive explosion at a Navy yard in California was the deadliest home front disaster in the war. The aftershocks would help transform the armed forces and American society. Many African Americans were eager to serve in the United States military during World War II, hoping their patriotism and courage would prove them worthy of the nation's promise of equity for all people. But even as they battled foreign countries that threatened our democracy, at home these men and women found themselves fighting the same racism and segregation they had endured as civilians. In a new book, Half American, Matthew F. Delmont, a historian at Dartmouth College, chronicles the service members' struggles, including a momentous but largely forgotten Navy catastrophe that he says helped force the Navy and the larger military to desegregate. At the U.S. Navy Ammunition Depot at Port Chicago on Susan Bay, capital S-U-I-S-A-N, some 36 miles northeast of San Francisco, black seamen worked in shifts around the clock loading ships bound for the Pacific. Every day they transferred hundreds of tons of bombs and shells from railroad boxcars to ships. Sometimes the bombs were wedged so snugly in the boxcars that the sailors struggled to loosen them safely. It was dangerous work, 
and shortly after 10 p.m. on July 17, 1944, it proved deadly. People throughout the Bay Area awoke to something that felt like an earthquake, a blast with the force of five kilotons of TNT. Sailors sleeping in their barracks a mile and a half from the port thought they were under attack from Japanese bombers. Everybody felt at that point that it was another Pearl Harbor, said Jack Crittenden, a 19-year-old seaman from Montgomery, Alabama. People running and hollering. Finally, they got the emergency light together. Then some guys came by in a truck and we went down to the dock. But when we got there, we didn't see no dock, no ship, no nothing. One ship, the Quino Victoria, capital Q-U-I-N-A-U-L-T, was lifted out of the water, spun around, and shattered into pieces. Only tiny fragments of another ship, the E.A. Bryan, were ever recovered. All the people on the pier, aboard the two naval ships, and on a nearby Coast Guard fire barge were killed instantly. 320 people died, including 202 black enlisted sailors. Only 51 bodies were recovered. It was the worst home front disaster of the war. Sailors raced to help injured crewmates and fought fires that could have triggered additional explosions. All of them were shaken by what they witnessed. I was there the next morning, Crittenden recalled in an interview with historian Robert Allen. Man, it was awful. You'd see a shoe with a foot in it. You see a head floating across the water, just the head or an arm, just awful. That thing kept you from sleeping at night. One of the seamen had been home in San Diego on leave after his wife gave birth to their son. When he returned to Port Chicago after the explosion and found all of his buddies had been killed, he said something just snapped within him. The black sailors at Port Chicago had voiced their safety concerns numerous times over the prior year. Segregation relegated them to the dangerous task of handling tons of high explosives every day, even though the men were given no specific training. Men learned how to operate winches, to move thousand-pound bombs by watching other sailors operate the machines. White officers pitted different divisions against each other, pushing the sailors to race to load the most tonnage during their shifts. Winners got access to recreational privileges, radios, and black newspapers, but as the pace ratcheted up, so did the risk of an accident. Like other black servicemen assigned to heavy back-breaking labor, whether it was in the cold of Alaska or the heat of New Guinea, the black sailors at Port Chicago also chafed at working in segregated units under the supervision of white officers. They described themselves as a chain gang, mule team, and slave outfit and understood that they were cheap labor compared to civilian stevedores who loaded and unloaded cargo from ships. A year before the explosion, a group of the sailors had written to a local attorney warning that morale had dropped to an alarming depth and asked for help. We, the Negro sailors of the Naval Enlisted Barracks of Port Chicago, California, are waiting for a new deal, they said in conclusion. Will we wait in vain? Four days after the explosion that destroyed Port Chicago, the Navy began its investigation. Three senior officers and a judge advocate interviewed 125 witnesses over a month, only five of whom were black sailors. The officers deflected blame for prioritizing output over safety and for the seamen's lack of training. Instead, they pointed their fingers at the enlisted men. 
The consensus of opinion of the witnesses is that the colored enlisted personnel were neither temperamentally or intellectually capable of handling high explosives, the judge advocate concluded. It is an admitted fact supported by the testimony of the witnesses that there was rough and careless handling of the explosives being loaded aboard ships at Port Chicago. Much of the same way military leaders had blamed black troops for the violence they encountered at army camps in the South, now the Navy blamed black sailors for the port shoddy safety protocols. Of course, the sailors who were at Port Chicago docked that July night were not alive to defend themselves from these accusations. Most of the surviving black sailors were eventually transferred to the naval barracks in Vallejo, California, near the Mare Island shipyard and ammunition depot. They were in shock and still mourning the deaths of so many of their friends. Men startled at every slammed door and drop box. Without any information about what caused the explosion, they were anxious about returning to shiploading duty. They already resented their day-to-day -day treatment as laborers, and now they worried that every bomb they moved could be their last. To make matters worse, the Navy gave white officers 30-day survivor's leave to visit their families before returning to regular duty, but denied black sailors the same benefit. As the men worked at the barracks in Vallejo, and it became clear they would soon resume duty under the same officers, they began to talk among themselves about refusing to load ammunition. In early August, when the officers tried to march the black sailors to the Mare Island Ammunition Depot, the majority refused to go. The men were told they would face severe penalties if they did not return to work, but the protests persisted. By the end of the afternoon, more than 250 black sailors were imprisoned on a barge where they were guarded by Marines and held for three days. Joseph Small, a sturdily built seaman first class, emerged as a protest leader. The younger sailors respected the 20-year-old Small like an older brother. As tempers flared on the cramped ship, Small urged the men to stick together, remain composed, and avoid getting in trouble with the guards. In the chow hall, he organized the men to cook, serve meals, and clean the kitchen. We've got the officers by the balls. They can do nothing to us if we don't do anything to them, he told the men. If we stick together, they can't do anything to us. Small and others were optimistic that if they demonstrated they were not refusing to work, only to load ammunition, they would be transferred to other duty. The men did not anticipate that what they saw as a work stoppage, akin to a wildcat strike, the Navy saw as mutiny. As far as we were concerned, mutiny could only be committed on the high seas, Small recalled. We didn't try to take over anything. We didn't try to take command of the base. We didn't replace any officers. We didn't try to assume an officer's position. How could they call it mutiny? The sailors would pay dearly for this faulty assumption. When the men were released from the ship, they were marched to a baseball field under armed guard. Admiral Carlton Wright, commander of the 12th Naval District Headquarters at Mare Island, arrived in a jeep and proceeded to berate and threaten the black sailors. I want to remind you that mutinous conduct in the time of war carries a death sentence, Wright said, and the hazards of facing a firing squad are far greater than the hazards of handling ammunition. Men not long removed from civilian life who less than a month earlier had seen hundreds of their friends and fellow sailors blown up, were now being told they could be executed if they did not load explosives. When the Admiral left, 
The officers ordered their men to go to one side if they would follow orders to load ammunition and to the other side if they refused. It was a wrenching decision, and men wept openly as they tried to balance their own lives against their bonds with other black sailors. More than 200 men decided to return to work, and the admiral recommended that they be charged with summary courts martial for refusing to obey orders. When the Navy notified President Franklin Roosevelt of the decision, he wrote, It seems to me we should remember in the summary courts martial of these 208 men that they were activated by mass fear and that this was understandable. Their punishment should be nominal. The other 50 men who refused to load ammunition were charged with conspiring to make a mutiny. They were transferred 30 miles north to the brig at Camp Shoemaker and interrogated. The charges the men faced carried lengthy prison sentences and possibly death. The trial began on September 14th before a seven-member court of senior naval officers appointed by Admiral Wright. They served as both judge and jury. Lieutenant Commander James F. Coakley led the prosecution. Lieutenant Gerald Veltman, a 33-year-old Houston lawyer, headed the defense, and the judge advocate's office assigned five lawyers to represent groups of 10 men. All of the officers trying and deciding the case were white. In the courtroom, the senior naval officers were seated directly across from the prosecution and defense, while the black sailors lined the periphery, listening anxiously while their lives hung in the balance. The court-martial of the Port Chicago Seamen was the first U.S. mutiny trial of World War II and the largest mass trial in Navy history. Unusual for military trials, the Navy encouraged newspaper and wire service reporters to cover their proceedings, intending the national publicity to show that the black sailors were receiving a fair trial while also serving as a warning to other troops who might be tempted to disobey orders. The prosecution argued that the sailors' fear was no excuse for their insubordination and that the meetings Joseph Small organized aboard the barge constituted a conspiracy to mutiny. The defense countered that the officers asked the sailors if they were willing to load ammunition after the explosion, but had not ordered them to do so. The men refused to move explosives because they were fearful, the defense contended, not conspiring to mutiny. Those men were no more guilty of mutiny than they were of flying to the moon, Veltman argued. The families of the 50 men contacted the NAACP and Thurgood Marshall, then the director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, flew to San Francisco in October to attend the trial and to contribute to the sailors' defense. This is not an individual case, Marshall argued. This is not 50 men on trial for mutiny. This is the Navy on trial for its whole vicious policy toward Negroes. Marshall demanded a formal government investigation of Port Chicago, including why black seamen were assigned to segregated labor units and why they were given no safety training before being required to move dangerous explosives. I want to know why the Navy disregarded official warnings by the San Francisco Waterfront Unions before the Port Chicago disaster that an explosion was inevitable if they persisted in using untrained men in the loading of ammunition, Marshall said. I want to know why the Navy disregarded an offer by these same unions to send experienced men to train Navy personnel in the safe handling of explosives. I want to know why the commission officers at Port Chicago were allowed to race their men. I want to know why bets ranging from $5 up were made between division officers as to whose crew would load more ammunition.
After six weeks of hearings, the jury of senior naval officers adjourned to make their ruling. Their deliberations barely extended over the lunch hour before they reached a verdict. They found all 50 sailors guilty of mutiny. The men were sentenced from between 5 and 15 years in prison. Marshall Riley noted that the officers deliberated for about a minute and a half for each defendant. He immediately started working on the appeal process, which carried into the following year. The NAACP published Mutiny, a pamphlet ghostwritten by Mary Lindsay, a white reporter for the leftist People's World newspaper, to call attention to the case and urge members to write protest letters to the Navy. The Navy has a slogan, Remember Pearl Harbor. A reminder of foreign treachery against democracy, the pamphlet concluded. There is another slogan the Navy should adopt. It is a reminder of what treachery to our own ideals within a democracy does to that democracy. The pointless, meaningless deaths of over 320 Americans must be given a point, must be given a meaning for the living. Remember Port Chicago. Marshall took the appeal to the Navy's Judge Advocate General's office in Washington, D.C. He argued that the military was too quick to label any disobedience by black sailors or soldiers as a mutiny and that the Navy was making scapegoats of the men to cover up the practices that led to the explosion. Marshall's appeal was unsuccessful, and the black sailors spent the rest of the war in the Terminal Island Military Prison in San Pedro, south of Los Angeles. Amid growing pressure to desegregate the military, the Navy eventually shortened the sentences and released the men from prison in 1946. Efforts to clear the sailors' names would continue for decades after the war. Port Chicago was just one of several cases of black military personnel protesting discriminatory treatment. The 12,500 black Seabees, Naval Construction Battalion personnel, did important work for the Navy. They built advanced bases, constructed underwater slips for naval vessels, and offloaded cargo. Like other black military laborers, they worked under white officers. A thousand black Seabees, who had served nearly two years overseas in Tulugai and Guadalcanal in the Pacific Theater, staged a hunger strike at Camp Rousseau in Port Hunami, California, after their commanding officer refused to promote black Americans and assign black Seabees only to unskilled manual labor. It is discouraging and destructive to the morale when they see white men with much less preparation than they have and with no more apparent qualifications of leadership than they possess being advanced beyond them. NAACP Acting Secretary Roy Wilkins said, 19 of the Seabees were discharged for seditious behavior. At Freeman Army Airfield in Indiana, more than 100 Tuskegee Airmen officers were arrested when they attempted to integrate an all-white officers club. I'd flown 67 combat Michigans in Europe, Lieutenant Colonel Clarence Jameson recalled. As an officer of the United States Army Air Corps who'd put his life on the line for this country, why couldn't I use a United States Army officers club? The black pilots had endured racism at Tuskegee, from segregated bathrooms on base to violence at the hands of police in town. They had risked their lives and lost friends fighting for a country that treated them as less valuable than white citizens. Now they were fed up. Their protests happened to take place at an officer's club, but it was about much more than that. It was a slap in the face, Jameson said. 
It defiled the graves of black pilots who'd made their ultimate sacrifice for their country, but couldn't get into a dive club because of their skin color. At Fort Devens in Massachusetts, 51 black women went on strike to protest racial discrimination at the Women's Army Corps. Many of the women were college graduates and were enticed to enlist in the Women's Army Corps by promises of skilled jobs only to be assigned cleaning duty. Alice Young, a 23-year-old from Washington, D.C., who left nursing school to join the WAC, recalled that her hospital commander told her, I do not have colored WACs as medical technicians. They are here to scrub and wash floors, wash dishes, and do all the dirty work. The four strike leaders, Mary Green, Anna Morrison, Johnny Murphy, and Young were court-martialed. If it will help my people by me taking a court-martial, I will be willing to take it, Morrison said. Hundreds of other black soldiers and sailors staged their own individual protests, refusing to obey racially unjust orders from officers, military police, or local sheriffs. Second Lieutenant Jackie Robinson was court-martialed at Camp Hood in Texas in the summer of 1944 when he refused to move to a seat in the back of an Army bus. Robinson was with the light-skinned wife of another black officer, and the two had picked seats in the middle of the bus. The driver glanced into his rearview mirror and saw what he thought was a white woman talking with the black second lieutenant, Robinson remembered. He became visibly upset, stopped the bus, and came back to order me to move to the rear. I didn't even stop talking, didn't even look at him. I had no intention of being intimidated into moving into the back of the bus. Although Robinson was three years away from breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball, he was already a well-known athlete after starring in four sports at UCLA. Word of his court-martial would likely garner national attention, so after the arrest, Robinson wrote to Truman Gibson, who was chief civil advisor to the Secretary of War. Robinson asked his advice, I don't want any unfavorable publicity for myself or the Army. But I believe in fair play and I feel I have to let someone in on the case, he wrote. I don't care what the outcome of the trial is because I know I'm being framed and the charges aren't too bad. The court-martial trial moved quickly and the Army acquitted Robinson, granting his request for exemption from active military service and honorably discharged him in the fall. The unit Robinson was attached to, the 761st Tank Battalion, nicknamed the Black Panthers, went on to distinguish itself in the Battle of the Bulge as part of General George Patton's Third Army. Why do Negro soldiers and sailors mutiny? The Chicago Defender asked after 73 soldiers in the 1320th Engineer General Service Regiment in Hawaii were court-martialed and convicted of mutiny. The men worked in a labor battalion, clearing airfields and moving tons of earth. They refused to show up for work after their black officers were transferred. The Chicago Defender argued that the men's defiance was deeply rooted in histories and traditions of black resistance. From slavery to slave labor has been the fate of the Negro who becomes a soldier or sailor. As a slave, the Negro revolted, fought, bled and died to break the chains that bound him. As slave labor in the Army and Navy, he is doing no less. Marshall and the NAACP were involved in almost all these court-martial and mutiny cases and saw a clear pattern. It is apparent that most of these incidents arose from a final break in the spirit of the Negro soldiers due to continued mistreatment, he said. The tendency in military circles seems to be that 
any concerted display of resentment against ill treatment among Negro soldiers is called mutiny. The common thread that connected the black sailors at Port Chicago, CBs at Camp Rousseau, Tuskegee Airmen at Freeman Field, WACs at Fort Devens, and thousands of other troops was their desire to serve their country without being discriminated against or degraded. As the Chicago Defender put it, the Negro will give life for his country, but he will not be a slave. There are several photographs that go along with this story. First off, there are two pictures side by side. One shows sailors unloading a ship at a dock. The next picture beside it shows about 10 black sailors in a room handling bombs. The caption reads, During World War II, black sailors at segregated Port Chicago were assigned the most dangerous tasks, such as working with explosives. African-American sailors' request to receive the training necessary to properly handle bombs and other forms of ammunition were ignored. The next image that goes along with this story is a map of the San Francisco Bay Area that shows Port Chicago to the northeast of Oakland. Next, we have a picture that shows Port Chicago under construction and then a picture of the port after the actual explosion. The caption reads, Construction of Port Chicago, seen before the disaster, began in 1942. Sailors worked round the clock loading munitions on ships bound for the Pacific Theater. Little remained of a carpenter shop on the pier at Port Chicago after the building was leveled by the explosion of two munitions ships the evening of July 17, 1944. The next photograph shows a young Thurgood Marshall sitting at a desk. Thurgood Marshall went on to become the first African-American justice on the United States Supreme Court. The caption reads, As an NAACP attorney, Thurgood Marshall, shown here in 1952, helped defend black sailors who said they were subjected to unfair treatment at the United States Navy facility. The next photograph is a black and white picture of a naval court hearing in which the officers are sitting at a table in the middle of the room and the black defendants are gathered behind them. The caption reads, A couple of months after the catastrophe, 50 African-American sailors were tried for mutiny in military court after they objected to unsafe conditions and refused to continue working. The next photograph shows a seaman having a medal pinned on his chest by a naval officer. The caption reads, Seaman Second Class F.S.S. Allen received the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for risking his life to bring flames under control in the aftermath of the explosion. That article is from the September 2022 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. It is called Half the Battle and was written by Matthew F. Delmont. Our next reading is a column from the Rome, Georgia News Tribune and the NorthwestGeorgianews.com website. The title of the column is Georgia School for the Black Deaf in the Spotlight. It was written by Adonia K. Smith and was originally published August 10th, 2022. All deaf schools, no matter what kind, are equally important. Georgia School for the Black Deaf is an example. 
We do not talk about, recognize, or celebrate Georgia School for the Black Deaf nearly as much as we should. This week, the school is in the spotlight. First, the name Georgia School for the Black Deaf and other Black Deaf schools in my columns are not official school names. The actual names include derogatory terms that I do not use. The same goes for deaf schools in general. Black deaf Georgians finally had access to education after the Civil War ended in 1865. The first black deaf school opened in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1869. Other schools followed in the southern United States. GSBD was established on February 23, 1876 and opened on May 15, 1882 in Cave Spring. GSBD originally stood on its own campus somewhere near the entrance of present-day Rehab Drive to the present-day Cave Springs Center. GSBD fans rooted for the Panthers as their mascot. Nearby Georgia School for the Deaf cheered on the Blue Jays and later the Tigers. Black deaf schools typically hired a white deaf principal. For example, Alfred F. Wood, an Ohio School for the Deaf graduate, was the first principal at Alabama School for the Black Deaf when it opened in 1892 and listed as a VIP in the GSD 50th anniversary celebrations. Contrary to the norm, GSBD had a black hearing principal. Frederick M. Gordon was an alumnus of Fairview Brown School, the first black school in Cave Spring, which stood across from GSD close to GSBD. He served as Georgia School for the Black Deaf's principal for 46 years until his death on January 24, 1928. He married Lucinda Jackson in 1857. After Lucinda's death in 1893, he married Maria C. Lee Gordon in 1894. Georgia School of the Deaf Centennial publication has a photo of Frederick. On the Georgia School of the Deaf Alumni Association Facebook page, June Davis Allsbrook, a GSBD alumnus, celebrates Frederick's life and accomplishments in a video. A rugged vintage admission book holds the names of students who attended GSBD. The first student recorded as shown were Nathan Walker, March 15th, Mary Freeman, March 15th, Leanna Holland, March 15th, Thomas Richards, March 15th, Edward Robinson, March 15th, Caesar Smith, March 15th, Thomas H. Sutton, March 15th, John Williams, March 15th, Adam Adams, March 15th, John Weems, March 15th, Clara Williams, March 15th, Mary Jenkins, March 20th, Jarita Shaw, April 15th, Bertha Morris, April 4th, and George Williams, March 15th. Discords and records and newspaper articles often occur, so the dissonance in this book is not surprising. In 1937, GSBD relocated to the Gordon campus, named for Frederick. The name fell into disuse after the Fannin campus closed in 1984. The campus was later renamed the Perry Campus. Back then, we signed Route 1 as the campus was on Route 1 at the time. The book commemorating the 150th anniversary of GSD contains a picture of the Old Rock Barn, a structure that predates the campus to around 1892 and still stands today. During segregation, fraternization of GSD and GSBD students was forbidden. 
A GSD student learned through the school newsletter, The School Helper, that there was a black deaf campus a quarter mile away. Determined to reach someone there, the student wrote a letter, folded it very small, and stood first in line for breakfast. Milk was delivered from that campus, so the student secretly asked the delivery person to make a special delivery. After several days of waiting and wondering, she got a reply. They became pen pals through the milk deliveries. After a while, the letters stopped. Several years later, both went to Gallaudet University and discovered they were on the same dorm floor. Finally, they could talk to each other at ASL. They remain friends to this day. In 1954, the milestone decision in Brown v. Board of Education, where the Supreme Court overturned Plessy v. Ferguson and declared that all black schools would desegregate in the United States, impacted GSD and GSBD. The process at GSBD began in 1966 and was completed in 1975. In 1974, a new law encouraged students with disabilities to mainstream at their local schools. All deaf students were deeply affected. There are books that capture the history of the black deaf schools in the South. The Segregated Georgia School for the Deaf relates the history and stories of the school. Another book, Deaf Culture and Race, The Hidden Treasure of Black ASL, presents research on the black deaf schools of the United States and the evolution of black ASL. A reunion was held solely for GSBD alumni in 2009 with a great turnout. Lois Smiley, a 1968 graduate who attended GSBD and GSD, donated a program book to the GSDAA Museum that will hopefully be included in a GSBD history display made possible by a donation from the GSD class of 1988. The Cedar Valley Academy in Cedartown, GSD, and GSBD in Cave Springs should be celebrated equally. They all contributed to valuable education for deaf Georgians. That was a reading of the column, Georgia School for the Black Deaf in the Spotlight. It was written by Adonia K. Smith and appeared in the Rome, Georgia News Tribune on August 10th, 2022. That's all the time we have for this week's African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thank you for joining me.